In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments in Dublin, Brussels and London. This week, the clock is ticking. Or is it? There's plenty of shadow boxing on the UK's intention to trigger Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol. We'll hear from Britain's Lord David Frost, who says he may have no alternative but to push the button. We'll hear from Leo Varadkar on why the entire free trade agreement could be terminated if Britain goes ahead and pulls the trigger. And we'll assess what Europe's responses might be, whether the technical talks between both sides on the EU's package of flexibilities have any chance of success, and if that might avert a highly unpredictable outcome if Article 16 is triggered. But first, let's go back to the beginning of this week. And on Monday, front pages were full of talk of EU retaliation, and that was a result of an interview that Simon Coveney did with our colleague Carol Coleman on the This Week programme. The rest of the EU is as concerned as we are. This is bad faith if it happens. Uh, It will be very damaging to the relationship between the UK and the EU, certainly to the bilateral relationship between the UK and Ireland, and I think also very damaging to the relationship between the UK and the US. Nobody should underestimate, particularly in Westminster, despite what Lord Frost is saying, that this is simply a technical measure that's being used, which is consistent with the protocol and what the protocol provides for. That is not a fair description of what the triggering of Article 16 to set aside significant elements of the protocol uh, would actually be doing. If the British government essentially refuses to implement the protocol, even with the extraordinary flexibilities that are now on offer, uh, and instead looks to set it aside then I think uh, uh, the EU will respond in a very serious way to that. Because, Does that mean a hard border? Uh, no, it doesn't. It means that uh, the, the trade and cooperation agreement that was agreed between uh, the British government and the EU was contingent on the implementation of uh, the withdrawal agreement, which, is, which includes the protocol. One is contingent on the other. And so if, if one is being set aside, there is a danger that the other will also be set aside by the EU. So are we Uh, looking at a trade war then, Minister? Well, I certainly hope we're not. But I think uh, it is important that people like me and others who've been involved in this process make it very clear to the British government the consequences of what they're considering doing in the context of the triggering of Article 16. I think I have a responsibility to perhaps set aside the diplomatic language that I'm expected to use as a foreign minister and be a bit more direct in relation Mm -hmm. to the consequences of that, as the Taoiseach has done this week. This would be a significant act that would damage uh, relationships uh, between Britain and Ireland, would put extraordinary pressure on parties in Northern Ireland also. So, Tony, Simon Coveney speaking in some quite robust terms. How would that go down in Europe? Would he have full licence to do that? Is stating the position about what might flow from the triggering of Article 16 something of a coordinated action 
or a solo run by the Irish government? Well, it, it certainly was reflective of what we spoke about last week in the podcast, this idea that the UK might be miscalculating if they thought that by triggering Article 16, the EU's response would be to, to start you know, consultations and then start a potential exchange of letters, infringement procedures, that the whole thing would get into a somewhat slow and, and turgid legalistic response by the EU. And certainly the signals last week were that that may not be the case, that th- there was a much more vivid appetite among member states and the European Commission to take a tougher line. And, and we were getting signals last week that, you know, that the protocol was part of the withdrawal agreement. The withdrawal agreement uh, gave rise to the free trade agreement. All these things were interconnected and you couldn't have one without the other. And that's uh, the, the EU might decide to go for a termination of the free, free trade agreement, the trade and cooperation agreement, depending on how the UK triggered Article 16, in, in other words, on what, what grounds they were using to trigger it. And so Simon Coveney was, as as the foreign minister of a, of a mem- member state at the centre of this issue, the first to really break ranks. I think the, the Belgian prime minister said something, or deputy prime minister said something similar, but the fact that it was Simon Coveney speaking out loud about terminating the free trade agreement, that certainly got a lot of newspapers and wire services uh, exercised on Monday. So, so that was why that message really started to wake people up. Um, and I think after that, there was an effort to try and tamp down some of the speculation. There was a lot of speculation on social media about what the EU would be entitled to do if tr- Article 16 was triggered. Would it simply be uh, something they could take through the withdrawal agreement, dispute settlement mechanism, arbitration? Could they just spring some kind of dramatic, robust response, retaliatory measures or rebalancing measures. A lot of talk about that. And in fact, you know, it hasn't come to that yet. And there are still ongoing trade or uh, technical negotiations between the EU and UK in London and in Brussels, back and forth, week on week. And I think the feeling was that those that process should be given a chance. Uh, and then we heard Michal Martin in the Doyle saying, look, um, we we must avoid self-fulfilling prophecies here. We can't be talking about retaliation when Article 16 hasn't been triggered and those technical talks continue. Right, yeah, re- remarks he repeated to our colleague Pascal Sheehy as well. I think we, we should be aware of self-fulfilling prophecies as well in, in that sense. So I think nothing, as I say, is, 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 is certain um, in that regard because we've been here before and negotiations are, are, are still underway. There's still engagement between the European Union and the UK. As I said in the Doyle last week, and I stand over my comments, I think it would be reckless and irresponsible to trigger uh, Article 16. Um, but I do, and I believe that all parties need to take on board the fundamental importance of the, the relationship between the European Union and the United Kingdom and the relationship between Irish government and the British government in terms of what has happened over the last 30 years, uh, working with the parties in Northern Ireland to transform the lives of the people of Northern Ireland. And, and nothing should be done, in my view, unilaterally, uh, that would endanger that. Sean, how did all of this go down in the UK? I suppose the contrasting tones, at least, of Simon Coveney on the one hand and Hall Martin on the other. We also had heard from Leo Varadkar as well, talking about what the consequences might be. A little bit of buzz about it, as Tony was saying, but I have to say I'm struck by the uh, quietness 
uh, around this issue at the moment in the UK. I think the media here are um, paying more attention to the Tory sleaze uh, scandals that are breaking out all over the place. Uh, and also a lot of the political bandwidth is going into the COP26 uh, uh, talks. That's the the, the official uh, side of, of uh, political life uh, here in uh, London, in Westminster in particular. So between the Tory sleaze and the COP26, there isn't an awful lot of space left for uh, the, the protocol right. and Brexit and the issues like that. And it's just not getting uh, the kind of oxygen that you might have expected it to have gotten. Uh, and certainly a, a couple of months ago, definitely would have gotten. Right. No bad thing, perhaps, but at least through the official channel, at least the Brexit point man speaking in the House of Lords, David Frost did give it some airtime. And I suppose some of the atmosphere at the, from the beginning of the week did inform some of the questions he was asked when he was on his feet in the House of Lords addressing the noble lords. Indeed, and remember, David Frost is uh, under the cosh a bit from uh, his fellow lords, uh, most of whom have a, a vast amount of experience in uh, European Union uh, matters, uh, both in their previous full-time roles, but also uh, the expertise that they've drawn on from a lifetime's work that uh, is very evident in the uh, House of Lords European Affairs Committee. So uh, a lot of top-level people who really, really know their stuff and know the buttons to push and the questions to ask uh, and give Lord Frost a hard time. He doesn't have that many friends popping up with friendly questions. You know, it's a fairly genteel sort of debating chamber. The back and forth isn't anything like as rowdy as it is in the lower house. Nevertheless, they uh, do uh, prod and push and get back some pushback type of answers right. as well. Well, walk us through the diplomatic language. Walk us through some of the detail of what he said there. Well, I mean, the, the sort of big question that everybody has, it seems to be the first question is when are you going to trigger Article 16? And uh, how close are you to triggering Article 16? His responses were basically on the line of, uh, well, we've got talks process continuing. Nevertheless, as I've told you before, uh, we have the conditions, we believe we have the conditions for activating Article 16. The aim has been to assess whether it's possible to close the substantial gap between our positions and secure a consensual negotiated resolution. So far, that has not been possible. This is, at least in part, because the Commission's proposals would not do enough to make the protocols sustainable for the future, or even, indeed, deliver what they have claimed. I have heard that view also expressed by many businesses I have spoken to in Northern Ireland and in Great Britain. If these talks do in the end fail, we will, of course, publish in full our assessment of the EU's proposals and set out why they fall short of a durable settlement. But we will not do this until we have exhausted all the negotiating possibilities. I can, of course, reassure noble lords that if Article 16 were to be used, we would set out our case with confidence and we would spell out why it was wholly consistent with our legal obligations. We would also be ready to explain that case to any interested party, not just the signatories to the treaty, but to those with a broader interest in relations with the EU and the UK. One of the points that he made was that he was clearly picking up on the stuff we've discussed, uh, the, the talk of retaliation, uh, both behind the scenes briefings and so on, but also, as we said, Simon Coveney's remarks. Uh, he he characterised this as uh, massive and disproportionate retaliation from the EU, and he effectively said that if the EU were to take that kind of response, 
it would kind of tell the UK what the UK, re- what the EU really felt about the peace process and the people of Northern Ireland. Let's hear what he had to say on that. The EU, however, seems to be arguing something different at the moment. They seem to be claiming that it will be entirely unreasonable for the British government, uniquely, to use these wholly legitimate safeguard provisions within the treaty, designed precisely to deal with situations like the current one. They're also suggesting that we can only take that action at the price of massive and disproportionate retaliation. My Lords, I I gently suggest that our European friends should stay calm and keep things in proportion. They might remind themselves... They might remind themselves that no government and no country has a greater interest in stability and security in Northern Ireland and in the Belfast Good Friday Agreement than this government. We're hardly likely to proceed in a way that puts all that at risk. If the EU were to choose to react in a disproportionate way and decide to aggravate the problems in Northern Ireland rather than reduce them, that is, of course, a matter for them. At that point, of course, we will be entitled to come to our own judgment about how much value we could attach to their commitment supporting the peace process and the best interests of the people of Northern Ireland as against protecting their own interests. But increasingly, Sean, what what we've heard from the British side is a a focus on the ECJ. While there are practical issues, while there are things being ironed out with regard to customs declarations and medicines, although the, the UK would say that these are by no means solved by the European Union's papers on this, the issue of governance and the role of the European Court of Justice comes up time and time again, couched in terms of making the Northern Ireland Protocol tenable and sustainable. The aim has been to assess whether it's possible to close the substantial gap between our positions and secure a consensual negotiated resolution. So far, that has not been possible. This is, at least in part, because the Commission's proposals would not do enough to make the protocol sustainable for the future, or even, indeed, deliver what they have claimed. Yeah, or hollowing it out to such an extent that there's nothing left of the Northern Ireland Protocol except the name of the Northern Ireland Protocol, depending on your, your way of looking at things. And this uh, effort by Lord Frost to get his retaliation in first, if you like, about what the EU might do in response to any activation of Article 16 by the UK side, uh, and this division between what's proportionate and what's disproportionate uh, in the response it all boils down on what bit to what basis the British would actually use to to activate Article 16. And everything that they've been talking about since July has been around diversion of trade. Um, so I guess we're back to the old sausage war issue. Um, is sausage meat going to be the hill on which they uh, die on or activate Article 16? Uh, and, you know, if it is, what is the response from the EU and what would be classified uh, or acceptable to the British as a, a re- proportionate response? Because, you know, when you, they walk you through Article 16 and the mechanics of it, they're fully accepting of the fact that there can be and is written down in this uh, article uh, a response mechanism by the other side to ensure that there is a, a maintenance of balance in uh, the operation of the uh, Uh, of the protocol Uh, but they're saying effectively if we trigger on the issue of sausage meat and the eu is to say right you're on one year's notice that we're going to end the trade and cooperation agreement the whole basis of uh, british eu trade going forward and here's your one year notice period starting now that that would be 
a very disproportionate thing to do, and that would uh, give the lie to this idea that the EU is, is concerned about peace in Northern Ireland, because that would be really uh, tearing up all of the agreements that are uh, in place at the moment, and who knows what would, would slip in in its place. So that's the kind of ground that he's kind of setting out. And, you know, some people talk about pitch rolling, of preparing the ground uh, upon which he wants to play the game. Uh, and, he, you know, they've been fairly forward about that and pushing out uh, defensive positions before they need to get to them and trying to paint the EU as the bad guy in everything all of the time. Perfectly understandable if you're the British government and you're taking this fairly uh, aggressive uh, posture. And I think that's what he was doing in the House of Lords. Right, but there is provision made, Tony, for the use of Article 16 in the context of the Northern Ireland Protocol. And if significant problems arise, one one side can trigger our Article 16. Indeed, as, as we've mentioned several times before, it was nearly out of the box uh, at the beginning of the year when it came to the issue of vaccines. But ultimately that didn't happen. But why would it require retaliation if it was being triggered when it's provided for? Is it the basis on which it's being triggered? Is it whether or not the other side agrees that the legal rationale is there to trigger it? Or can you take retaliatory measures on what you suspect are the motives of the other party rather than what's stated as the reason for triggering Article 16? Mm. Yeah, a lot of uh, good questions there. I mean, I suppose one of the problems is that Article 16 is quite broadly sketched. It doesn't define what societal and economic difficulties that are likely to persist are exactly. Those Those are one of the grounds that you can have to trigger Article 16. It doesn't define what diversion of trade is or how bad it has to be. I mean, there are some people who argue, and, and the DCU Brexit Institute had a very good paper out this week from a, an American academic called Rob Howes on this issue. A lot of these issues of diversion of trade, you know, upheaval and difficulty were entirely predictable. And that was always going to be the case with the protocol and indeed with Brexit in general. So so th- there could be an argument that well, certainly the EU is making the argument that the grounds are not there for triggering Article 16. And even if you do trigger Article 16, it must be for a limited period. It must be done in such a way so as to limit the disruption to the protocol. And I think the overall messaging from the EU side is if the UK is triggering Article 16 just to completely renegotiate the protocol, then that is is essentially a bridge too far. And that is where they would start to get heavy and talk about terminating the trade and cooperation agreement. Remember, the way they're looking at this is when Brexit happened, we had the triggering of Article 50. We had the negotiations to for the divorce treaty, the withdrawal agreement started. And at the very outset, there was a sequencing which was agreed by both sides that the UK could not advance towards the trade negotiations until they settled the issue of citizens' rights, the financial settlement and Northern Ireland. And they, they, they did that with the joint report in 2017. That got them onto the next phase about talking about the future. And then, of course, when the withdrawal agreement was concluded in 2019, the trade negotiations started. And that treaty, again, was predicated on a successful divorce treaty. So as far as the EU is concerned, all these things are interlinked. There's a sequencing to everything. And if you suddenly just try to whip out the rug from underneath the protocol, 
then that makes the whole architecture fall down. So on that basis, they would say uh, we'd be perfectly entitled to terminate the the trade and cooperation agreement with with a year's notice, of course. But in what forum is that decided, that the grounds for triggering Article 16 are justifiable in terms of the the, the stated reason? Where does that end up ultimately? I mean, are we back to the role of the European Court of Justice on this one? Where does it play out at the final stages if there's disagreement on the legitimacy of triggering it between both sides? Well, as far as I'm aware, right, first of all, there would be a, a period of consultation lasting a month once somebody formally notifies Article 16. And in that month, you are supposed to de-escalate the situation as best you can. Uh, if that doesn't work, then then we get into dispute settlement mechanisms and arbitration um, as to whether or not Article 16 has been justified. Uh, and then you get into uh, you know, a very turgid legal debate. And this may be something that the UK is hoping will happen because it would give, uh, in essence, it would give London a period of time, first of all a month and then perhaps a year, even if the EU does signal termination of the trade agreement. It gives the UK a year to not no longer apply the protocol and then over time to demonstrate to the EU, look, uh, you can see we're not doing the checks and controls, how much stuff has leaked into the single market via Northern Ireland. Right. What is the risk? We, we can we can now demonstrate that the risk is marginal. So therefore, this is really, I mean, there is a narrative out there that David Frost simply wants to turn back the clock to 2017 because as we talked about last week, he feels that the joint report, this idea of Northern Ireland aligning with the single market in order to avoid a hard border, was a catastrophic mistake by the by the UK right. government, uh, a weak negotiating position. He essentially might want to turn back the clock to that time, and Article 16 could give him the lever to do that. Right. Uh, Sean, we did see another arm being put into this argument earlier in the week. On Wednesday, Simon Coveney was over at the COP26, and he was talking about Ireland's interest in oceans and a whole lot of other things that they're working towards on, on the COP agenda. But he was also asked about Article 16. And at the COP, there was an American delegation led by the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Let's hear that. Uh, there's a big US delegation here, actually. Speaker Pelosi is here as well. Um, and we're already speaking to them. Uh, they have very strong views on this issue. Um, you know, on Capitol Hill and in the White House. Uh, In many ways, they see themselves as guarantors or protectors of the Good Friday Agreement that they were very much part of brokering uh, more than two decades ago. And so the triggering of Article 16, I think, is seen as as a risk to political stability in Northern Ireland. The message coming from Washington, uh, the message coming from Brussels, and certainly the message coming from Dublin, and I would say from Northern Ireland too, uh, is that let's pull back from the brink here. Uh, Let's not take more unilateral action that will damage relationships uh, and deepen divisions, particularly in Northern Ireland, but also across the island of Ireland as a whole. Uh, And instead, let's focus on where we can find agreement through compromise and flexibility in terms of the implementation of the protocol. I think the EU is up for that kind of conversation. I hope the British government is too. So that was Simon Coveney talking about the US delegation agreeing largely with what the EU and the Irish position is. And this was followed up then last night by Ursula von der Leyen speaking after her meeting with Joe Biden and the White House, in which it wasn't really about 
the vague generalities of supporting the Good Friday Agreement. It was specifically on the protocol. Let's hear from her. So I think um, the President Biden and I, we share um, the assessment that it is important for peace and stability on the island of Ireland to keep the withdrawal agreement and to stick to the protocol. Um, this protocol has managed to square the difficult circle um, uh, that Brexit caused. And now Northern Ireland has access to both markets. So Sean, the, it sounds like there has been an intensification of the effort to cement the US's sympathy for the EU side on this and to not just get commitments to support the Good Friday Agreement, which nobody is against, but specifically to get support for the protocol. Yeah, I mean, I think the concerns about the um, activation of Article 16 and where it could lead to uh, are starting to uh, concentrate minds a lot now. And I think there's definitely signs of an effort uh, by the European governments, by the European Commission, to put pressure on the British to back off the threat on Article 16, uh, particularly backing off away from the idea of ripping up the bits of the protocol that relate to the European Court of Justice and try to get them to just concentrate on the practical issues. Um, we've talked about this division before, uh, that there's a, a range of practical problems about implementing the protocol on the ground. These are the things that the British government and the European Commission have been consulting with business groups in Northern Ireland on. Those business groups have been very active in coming forward with potential solutions and workarounds for this. And the Commission itself, as we know, has published their paper on uh, things that they think could be done. Uh, But we heard Cevcevic last week basically complaining that the British hadn't really engaged with that agenda and were just letting the talks ramble through and kept fixating on uh, the bigger picture, uh, as the British would see it, of changing the protocol itself and stripping the European Court of Justice out. So by wheeling out the big guns this week, uh, I think the Commission are, uh, and the European side, and indeed the Americans, are now putting pressure on Boris Johnson at a time when he's quite vulnerable uh, domestically as well uh, because of that uh, Tory sleaze scandal. And indeed, up at the COP, uh, Boris Johnson was giving a, a, a fairly rare news conference to journalists, which of course ended up with him have, being asked a lot of questions uh, about uh, the Slee scandal and having to uh, make a defence of, of British politics in front of uh, international journalists. Here's a quick taste of that. The UK is not remotely a uh, corrupt uh, country. That I know that I- so I think you know you can see that the British government are feeling the heat. Uh, both domestically and internationally, and uh, you know there is this effort to concentrate minds here in London as to what will be the uh, damage, the international reputational damage to the UK, not just the government, but to its whole industrial base uh, and services base uh, for international trade and exports uh, of activating Article 16 and getting involved in a trade war with their biggest trading partner. Just to pick up, Sean, on, on your remarks there about you know, the efforts the EU is making, certainly at the uh, what we call co-repair, which is basically the weekly meeting of EU ambassadors. Maros Shevchevic briefed ambassadors on Wednesday um, and essentially said that the technical talks really weren't going anywhere and that he had tried or, or the EU team, the commission team had tried to get a, a paper together 
basically crystallising where both sides were in agreement, uh, but that when that paper went up the, the line to David Frost, he refused to back it. Um, so this again feeds into the narrative that the EU is trying to find practical solutions and the, the UK isn't really interested because they're trying to bring in these bigger issues that are basically not on the agenda as far as the EU is concerned, such as the, the European Court of Justice. And, you know, there was a briefing for journalists um, this morning being Thursday uh, by, by, the, by the European Union in which it was said that there was a point of commonality uh, or an agreement, if you like, between both sides on the question of risk, you know, goods coming into Northern Ireland from Great Britain, uh, you know, if they're if they're clearly only going to 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 the Republic, that's one thing. But if they're clearly only staying in Northern Ireland, then they shouldn't be subject to the same regime of checks and controls. And the EU official said, uh, we, you know, we agree. Um, that is a point of commonality, but. Um, the idea, which is what the UK wants, uh, that traders themselves just, you know, look after that side of things uh, as, as a kind of an honesty box. Um, he said, look, that's just not going to work. You need some kind of, um, you know, official measuring and recording of data just to make sure we know what the risk is. Um, so you could see how the EU is saying, well, look, you know, we, we, we hear you. We, we want to deal with these issues, but there's only so far we can go. Another issue which the UK have brought up is VAT. Again, this was not an issue several months ago. Um, the, the fact that Northern Ireland follows EU VAT rules, whereas they don't in the rest of the UK, obviously, and this is causing problems for traders. The official said, look, in the protocol itself, there is a provision for the joint committee to deal specifically with the VAT question. If it's proving problematic for traders, it can be discussed at the joint committee, see how far you can push solutions using those mechanisms. But again, he said the EU, the UK had simply refused to use the joint committee uh, for that purpose. So therefore, this again raises the suspicion that the UK is, is lobbying in stuff that they know the EU can't agree on uh, simply to frustrate the process. OK, well, I suppose in a departure from the usual format of the podcast where we have a quick rattle through what the diary markings are in the week ahead, it is, seeing as we're doing this, A, a day early, and B, it's probably worth looking at what kind of meetings are taking place and what might be expected from them, given the week we've had. Tony, do you want to start there and give us a, an idea of what's on the calendar? Well, the, I mean, I suppose the, the, the big issue, and we're recording this a day early, is, is that the Frost and Sheftovich are meeting in London. That They'll have lunch and then there will be a, a news conference by Mara Sheftovich afterwards. We, we don't know yet about David Frost, what his intentions are. But I suppose the big question is if the UK is going to trigger Article 16, there's been a lot of speculation that they would do it after the COP26 uh, there are various ways of looking at this. If the UK does trigger Article 16 next week, you have a month of uh, consultations, one presumes. But if the EU decides that they are entitled to have rebalancing measures right away, then you could you know, conceivably see the French government deciding to once again uh, tighten up checks and controls on lorries going in and out of uh, French ports to the UK. And that does pose a potential problem for Boris Johnson. If that threat is is acted upon or that possibility is acted upon, then you could see big tailbacks. You could see shortages of goods for Christmas. So that's something to, to bear in mind for Boris Johnson. Um, in the longer term, you know, there is a, there is a consensus among legal experts that 
if the UK were to trigger Article 16 simply because they, they want rid of the European Court of Justice, uh, then that's not really provided for in the, in, the, in the protocol and that they could face a legal challenge. So the question is whether the UK would bring in new legislation that might ring-fence them from that, uh, that possibility. All right. Do we have any idea of what form that might take? Or that sounds quite the wheeze. Well, the, the 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 UK is expected to bring in new legislation that will allow it to get rid of what's called retained EU law. And David Frost made a very important speech on this to the House of Lords on the seventh, sixteenth of September, uh, because a lot of the regulations that Britain operates are EU regulations, and you can't simply just wipe them off the the statute book you have to have them there in some form as a a transitionary period uh, for a transitionary period David Frost was saying essentially that he wants to get rid of all that retained EU law that would permit the UK to much more swiftly diverge in areas like gene editing uh, which we've discussed before uh, artificial intelligence clinical trials for for new and innovative medicines and so on Um, now there is a suspicion that because the UK is already going to bring forward legislation, an act of parliament to uh, provide for that complete uprooting and getting rid of retained EU law, then they, they might look at that as a vehicle to also give themselves some legal cover to, in effect, give uh, legal weight and effect to the command paper, which which is is the basis of the UK's position at the moment. All of their negotiating is on the basis that they want the command paper from July, which essentially rips up the protocol, that they want that to be the, the, the new dispensation for Northern Ireland, the new, the new protocol, Mark II. So it's quite clear from people I've spoken to that that's something that the UK would need to have in terms of some legal tools, some, some legal cover. And that's why I think the, the Financial Times reported last week that the government, the Attorney General, was looking for uh, for new legal advice from a broader range of experts uh, on what they would need to do if Article 16 was to be triggered. Whatever would they need. I think you could nearly do with a couple of paracetamol after the all of the labyrinthine turns perhaps that might, might be involved in that. Uh, Sean, uh, what's coming up on your radar and what's, what's worth looking at in terms of the set pieces? Because we did hear David Frost say at the House of Lords that you know, not for another few weeks. So are we expecting anything imminently or just more, we're not there yet? Well, the, the sort of guidance we're getting from the British side is that the talks will run on into next week. I mean, Mara Shevtovich was calling a press conference uh, for tomorrow afternoon, Friday afternoon uh, in London. Uh, presumably, it's a good opportunity for him to uh, talk more directly to the UK um, journalists and try and get his side of the uh, argument uh, out that way. Uh, as regards legislation to do away with EU legislation, um, probably not going to happen next week because the, the British Parliament is in recess. Another reason perhaps not to uh, uh, do something as drastic as uh, activating Article 16, one would have thought that it would require a parliamentary statement and uh, some kind of a parliamentary debate. Um, it's something of, of this um, momentousness uh, to occur. You would have thought it would go through the normal 
uh, process uh, of being presented in the Parliament, but perhaps um, uh, it wouldn't be. Um, as regards the uh, expunging of EU law, yeah, I remember that speech from uh, David Frost uh, in the House of Lords. This is the old legal continuity uh, argument. If you remember your Irish history, the Ministers and Secretaries Act was the first act passed by the Doyle after independence, which basically said all the laws that we had up until midnight last night stay in effect for Serstot Aaron and its successor states, uh, and that way you just have legal continuity, and that applies with EU law in Britain. Uh, and, and, you know, to run any kind of a country, you need that kind of legal continuity because trying to change a huge body of law takes time, takes energy, takes uh, legal uh, technique and uh, competence and skill and it also takes a lot of time uh, i remember as part of the legal continuity there was a big reform in ireland around 2006 i think it was which is when uh, feudalism was formally removed from the irish statute book as was the um, norman ban on bearded men entering the city of dublin so some right. of these laws can hang around for an a awfully long mistake. time that had a clear effect in the in the hipster era they were the, the, the city was absolutely invaded by them there Nobody told Ronnie Drew, did they? Eh? <laughs> uh, anyway, that was just legal continuity. These things can, can take a bit of time. As I say, Parliament's in recess next week. Not likely to happen then. But one interesting thing uh, to look out for at the end of next week is the British-Irish Council uh, meeting. That's the uh, body that brings together all of the First Ministers from Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, the Isle of Man, Jersey, Guernsey. Um, the Taoiseach is going to it. British government, we think, is going to be represented by Michael Gove. Um, they don't usually send the Prime Minister to these um, uh, gatherings, uh, but um, Mr Gove would be a higher profile figure than uh, has been the case in, in many years in the meeting of this BIC. But you can imagine what sort of uh, a reception uh, there would be for the triggering of Article 16 uh, at a British-Irish Council. really wouldn't be a, a, a good uh, introduction to that event, which is happening in Cardiff, uh, on uh, Friday the 18th. So that's the week uh, here. And of course, we've got the ongoing uh, sleaze scandals and fallouts from that. And uh, depending on how that goes, particularly over the weekend newspapers, um, we'd be wondering uh, how strong uh, a position Boris Johnson will be in domestically to trigger uh, a big event like uh, Article 16. Some people have speculated on whether doing so would uh, get him off the hook or distract or divert attention from uh, sleaze. Um, I'm not so sure about that. I think, you know, Article 16, it's a fairly techie, fairly wonky niche, sort of a thing. Yeah. Sleaze is sleaze. It's easy to understand. And the public love a good dirty dogfight. And boy, are they getting plenty of it in the British press at the moment. Right. Okay. Yeah, well, I should probably just mention as well for posterity, next Friday night, Bar uh, Thomas Byrne, Ireland's European Affairs Minister, is going to be launching yet another ferry route from France to Ireland. That will be done in Le Havre. And he will be joined by the former uh, French Prime Minister, Edouard Philippe, uh, and possibly Clément Bone, the uh, somewhat outspoken French European Affairs Minister, might be there as well. But that would bring the number of direct routes from France to Ireland to, I think, 45 uh, these seem to be popping up every couple of weeks, so uh, we, we'll see uh, what, what emerges from that. All right, that's it from me, Colm O'Mungine, RT's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. From me, Sean Whelan, RT's Correspondent in London. And from me, Tony Connolly, RT's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening.